AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. It's brand new Season 2. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I like the big brains. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So uh so guys, uh we here in this room, in this podcast room, I think all agree that brains are, in general... Delicious. That's not the word I was going to use, but now we do know something specific about you, Joe. I was going to say they're, they're things that... Squishy. You know, I wasn't actually going to make this a guessing game. I was just going to tell you. <laughs> tell me about brains, John. I was just going to say that we were going to consider them, in general, to be good things to possess, right? Yeah. To be able to think and, and problem solve and anticipate things. This is, these, 
generally good traits, right? I, I enjoy mine about 56% of the time. Th- that's more than half. Uh, yeah, you'll notice that in the animal kingdom, or let's say in nature more generally, organisms that don't have brains usually are not very funny. Right. They don't have much good technology. Uh, yeah, their stand-up comedy is lackluster at best, to yeah. be honest. It's pedestrian, yeah. truly. Yeah. Okay, so we probably all agree that we have the power to develop our minds through education, right? So we can learn new skills and absorb new knowledge. But what I want to talk about today is whether we have the power to actually increase our base aptitudes in things like memory, reasoning, focus, all of the abilities that make up what we call intelligence or brain power. So can a person tune up his or her brain and simply make it a more effective machine? Also, we should just go ahead and address this right off the bat. I didn't put this in the notes, but we really it's one of those things that I'm sure all of our listeners already know. But unlike the popular depiction in media, such as in films like Lucy, we do, in fact, use 100 percent of our brains. We're in the whole idea of you only use 10 percent. And if you you could just unlock that other 90 percent of gray matter that's just laying dormant inside your skull, you could fly and look like Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. What what I've always thought about this is um, if you only use 10 percent of your brain, how come brain injury matters? I mean, wouldn't like 90 percent of brain injuries miss the part that you use or or you would just have another dormant part of the brain take the place of the injured part. Thus, you essentially yeah. have have 90% greater life yeah. in that brain. That's yeah, not the that way it whole works. 10% thing is – that's one of those that's such nonsense. I don't even know how it got started unless it's just one of those things that was just where a metaphor came to be taken literally by accident. Like somebody was just saying, oh, you know, we have untapped potential. We probably only use 10% of our brains and they didn't even mean it literally. Or they meant it some way of saying like 10% of your brain is dedicated to cognitive thought and the other 90% is to everything else that the brain does. Even yeah. even then, it's really misleading. At any rate, so we're not going to talk about the ability to suddenly unlock some potential in your brain that otherwise will remain untapped. We're talking about actually making your brain work better. Uh, so it's still going to be working at 100%. It's just now it's 100% is more efficient, <laughs> that it's able to pack more in that 100% than it was before. And uh, this in this particular episode, we wanted to really look at the ways you could do so through either dietary changes, uh, chemicals, this kind of thing. How Because our brains are electrochemical uh, organs, right? They communicate sure. through electrochemical uh, processes. And so it's not a huge surprise that chemicals can affect that. But before we get into all that, we should probably look back on just the idea of how humans as a species, how, how we've seen our brain sizes increase over the ages. Right. Over the last seven million years or so, the human brain has nearly tripled in size. A lot of that growth took place over the last two million years, actually, partially because in general, the more healthy our diet, the larger our brains could get. So the development of agriculture was a big step up from us as hunter gatherers. Uh, Access to a variety of foods also helped And some researchers are speculating that when humans began eating meat, uh, you know, which we can see in the fossil record as human teeth marks on bones about 2.3 million years ago, they speculate that that led to our brains to start 
really growing. And, you know, that, that when we started cooking our food, that helped a lot more as well, because we can get more nutrition out of it when we have cooked it. Now, our, our brains haven't been growing steadily this entire time. Uh, eventually, as agriculture became organized and then industrialized, and also as we didn't need to, you know, chew raw food really hard, our, our skulls and brains began to shrink a little over the past, like, 10,000 years or so. But there's a lot of friendly scientific disagreement among various researchers in various fields about what humans have done or haven't done exactly to make that happen. And furthermore, whether we can change our brains on purpose. Absolutely. And then there's also just the uh, uh, unfortunately, there's also a lot of misinformation out there for from various individuals, organizations, companies, whatever that are trying to market specific substances that are supposed to give specific effects and may or may not have any actual scientific foundation to make such claims. So well, it's a it's complicated substance, a cer- su- subject. Certainly. And it's, it's not all necessarily malicious. I mean, there have been many instances in history where people had the best of intentions, but just ha- were operating under a very basic misunderstanding sure. of what's going on in the brain. Yeah, I suggest we take a brief stroll through history and look at uh, what people have thought in the past the brain did and ideas they might have had about how its powers could be improved. So... What I mean, when did we figure out that the brain was for thinking? Thursday. <laughs> uh, on on a universal timeline, actually, yeah, like about about. <laughs> it was Thursday. pretty late, right? I, that was when I read the script. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Um. Folks have been pretty confused about the brain's functions and and our capacity to influence it for. Most of history, uh, starting in ancient Egypt is really when we have record of this by way of uh, the, the Egyptian funerary practice, which dictated that the brain just kind of be discarded during the embalming process because the heart was considered the seat of knowledge. Mm. Uh, and you've probably heard about that before. Yeah. But how about the fact that this theory still dominated around 450 B.C.? Thousands of years later, okay? That's when Alcmean, who was a Greek physician around that time, wrote down for the first time that we can determine now in modern history um, that the brain was actually important. It wasn't just something that you had to pull out through the nose and discard in a little trash urn. Yes. Um, And like a hundred years after that, even Aristotle stated that the brain is basically just a radiator designed to keep the heart at at its appropriate temperature. And it wasn't until dissection and comparison of human brains with animal brains became more widespread, circa like 300 BC to 200 BC or BCE, I should be saying all of this time, that the idea of the brain being responsible for memory and intelligence was actually popularized. That's really interesting to me. It makes me wonder what people in the ancient world thought when someone suffered a head injury and their their ability to uh, to to function would be impaired. I wonder how they they were able to reconcile that with this belief of that the, the heart the was, heart was the right. seat of thought. Oh, interestingly enough, there's also records from a few physicians and more kind of like lower class physicians that were doing preliminary kind of crude research, albeit into how to uh, fix brain injuries and help huh. people out. Interesting. For, for all of this time, but it wasn't really popular. It wasn't the 
common, widely held uh, aristocratic belief, certainly. Then, okay, starting around 170 BCE, we got the Roman physician Galen's ideas about humors. Uh, and I'm sure that everyone's heard of this kind of thing. It's one of my favorite terrific completely untrue things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's the, no, uh, it's the concept that the balance of four fluids being uh, blood, phlegm, choler, and black bile are responsible for a person's mental and physical health. And furthermore, that the brain is a gland that creates those four humors. Right. So mm-hmm. you have an imbalance of humors when you are not well. And depending upon your, uh, your, your symptoms, you have a deficiency or surplus of a certain humor. And they must be rebalanced. I still go to a physician who does this. Your primary care physician doesn't? <laughs> no. What? I'm Mo- on the wrong most, plan. Well, most it's people funny. got out of this around 1000 CE. Oh, you we know. still have it in our language, right? Like you can be really sanguine about something. Uh-huh. You can be like, out of or, humor. Or you can right. be phlegmatic. Phlegmatic. However you say that word. Phlegmatic. <laughs> <Yeah>. Sure. Automatic. <laughs> but so this this theory persisted for like a thousand years. OK. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just the idea that the brain was basically only a place where this fluid developed and that was all it was really good for. When we finally started getting out of that concept, uh, the church went ahead and banned human dissection in an anatomical study as desecrations of the body. So uh, we didn't really get any more research into the brain for another four or five hundred years. Are you mm. saying you're in favor of desecration? Uh, yeah, actually, Gosh. scientifically speaking. So, okay, it wasn't until about the 1600s or so that we started to actually understand anything about the brain and its and its functions, um, at which point we promptly continued to bork the entire business up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so powdered human skulls, dissolved brains, and even the moss that grew on unburied heads was thought to improve various brain-related conditions from, like, the 1600s to the 1900s. I feel like that's part of a sort of common way of thinking about medicine in the olden days, which is if something touches something or if it's like something, yeah. that's what you use to it's, fix it's it. It's a type of magical thinking. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sure, sure. And yeah. I mean, specifically, I'm talking about cannibalism, not about the in, in Western culture at any rate. It was mostly cannibalism and not animal brains and skulls. Yeah. So. I mean, like, to the point that uh, duties were placed on skulls imported to England from the battlefields of Ireland in the 1700s. It was that <laughs> big of a thing that people were like, we could tax this and make some money, y'all. Wow. That's okay. All right. Well, how about something closer <laughs> to modern time? Uh, yeah, in better news, Coca-Cola, back when it, you know, actual facts had cocaine in it in the 1800s, was sold as, and I quote, the ideal brain tonic. There were, in fact, a lot of cures, uh, cures in quotation marks, being sold around that time for neurasthenia, a.k.a. nervous exhaustion, a.k.a. basically any mental health issue one could possibly have. Mm. Um, most of which were just booze and whatever else seemed good at the time to grind up and put in booze. Oh, you mean the cures were just the cures booze. were yeah. booze. Yeah, you know, back in the, <laughs> the day, mental health problems weren't all booze. I'm sure that part of that was it. <laughs> it says it cures everything. It's got to work. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the rural synonyms for Coke for Coca Cola is dope. Did you guys know that? No, no. I did not. Although really? it makes sense. Yeah, huh. yeah. In certain areas of the southeast, it was uh, referred to just as dope because it was known to have, you know, stimulants in it. So it was doped with stuff, um, and it was. You know, supposed to be this kind of approach to, uh, you know, this sort of tonic, 
exactly as you were saying, that mm-hmm. it was not considered necessarily just a drink, but also a potential cure for things. Uh, as it turns out, we'll, t- we'll return to stimulants a little bit later in this episode and talk about how those are currently being um, uh, experimented with as far as brain function goes. Yeah, the- these days... Many remedies that are on the market are a little bit more reliable. However, you know, there, there's still a lot of claims that go on and, and FDA not approved kind of warning labels that packaging is required to have on them if, for example, it's totally not been checked out by the FDA to <laughs> sure. affirm whatever claim they're making. Right. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that the, the very first court trial that tested the uh, Pure Food and Drugs Act, which sprang up in the early 1900s, was about one of these brain tonics. It was called Cue for Headache Brain Food. <laughs> food? Bra- F-U-D? F-U-D-E. Oh, it might, it might be food. Fooday. Food, yeah, I'm it's not French. sure. Makes me think of a, a yeah. Far Side cartoon. That was Harper's Cure for Headache Brain Food, to be specific. Um, and Did it also cure broken bones, emphysema, all- <laughs> It made all those things back then, right? A lot of claims and consumption. I I don't think, yeah. Okay, well, fortunately, once we get into more recent medical history, we do start getting a better idea of some compounds and chemicals that actually do have a positive effect on brain health and brain power. Uh, Yes, and huzzah. (laughs) Yeah, one of the big ones we can first point to and say here here's a definite. Yes, one thing we we really know for sure is iodine. Um, so iodine has been shown to be very important in brain health, especially for pregnant mothers and how this will affect their baby. So early gestational iodine deficiency is known to be a cause of later mental disability. In 2013, a study published in The Lancet found that even a mild iodine deficiency uh, during pregnancy can cause lower verbal IQ scores for children. And then there was a paper published in 2013 in the National Bureau of Economic Research. I thought this was really interesting and is called The Cognitive Effects of Micronutrient Deficiency Evidence from Salt Iodization in the United States. Salt iodization, right? Adding mm-hmm. iodine to salt. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, iodine affects health in more ways than just uh, your mental powers. Mm-hmm. Like it, uh, you can get goiter and, and thyroid issues if you don't have proper iodine in your diet. So iodized salt was widely introduced in the United States in 1924. Um, we don't have large distributed samples of intelligence scores to work with from the time. So how do we look back and see if salt made a difference in intelligence back then? Well, the authors of this paper I just named came up with a really interesting method. They looked at the placement of armed forces recruits to infer data about mental aptitude uh, for children before the introduction of iodized salt and then after. And from the looks of it, the salt made a difference. In parts of the country where there was previously known to be an iodine deficiency, introduction of iodized salt led to a greater number of young men from those areas being admitted to a branch of the armed forces with higher aptitude requirements. And you could see the effect pretty much immediately. Kids, 1924 and after, it's a spike. Interesting. Yeah. And so there's one example where we know pretty sure that this is a chemical that really does affect brain brain function for the better. Right. You get it in your diet. It's something you need. Your body can't manufacture it naturally. So you've got to get it through the foods you eat or through a supplement or through salt or whatever it is. And it really does make a difference. 
But iodine is not the only chemical we know of today that can have a positive effect on our brain power. Right. And some of these chemicals, actually, uh, the one I'm going to the, – the broad category of chemicals I'm going to tackle next uh, has a temporary effect. So this is not something that, you know, you take a pill and then suddenly you're smarter. This is you end up taking uh, some dose of this chemical or this type of chemical – and part of your brain function might be sharpened or focused uh, for a, a given amount of time uh, until the effects of the chemical wear off. So, okay, so it's not increasing like your continuous base IQ, but it no. might yeah. might give you a really good edge on the study session. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to be across an entire population. This one is truly individual, right? This and this may very well mean that you're able to, like you said, study more uh, effectively in that you're able to form memories more effectively and you remember more of what you studied or that uh, you – memory is a really big one. That's one of the more popular uses for this broad uh, range of chemicals, which are, are known as nootropics, uh, which essentially means to bend the mind. <laughs> so it sure, sure does <laughs> – Like Matrix style? Like There our... is no spoon. But... <laughs> No, like what they call The Matrix the movie, right? On Netflix, it's a mind-bending thriller. Yeah, no, we'll get into more like the Matrix-style stuff in our in our companion episode where we talk about the tech that can uh, right. manipulate your brain. But in this case, these are uh, drugs that have an effect of some sort, or at least they're supposed to. Uh, not everything necessarily listed as a nootropic might have an actual effect. This is one of those things where you're going to be able to find a lot of stuff that's out on the market that isn't necessarily um, overseen by the FDA. So some claims may be unfounded, whether on purpose or not. But there are stimulants that can affect the way the brain functions and, in fact, have been used in medicine for quite some time, often to treat various disorders and diseases, uh, things like Parkinson's disease or ADHD or uh, Alzheimer's. These are all uh, various conditions that doctors have treated with the use of certain types of drugs, including uh Stimulants. Not all nootropics are stimulants, just a lot of them happen to be. So kind of similar to something like caffeine. If you guys have ever had a study session where you drank some caffeine so that you could really kind of feel focused and just uh, zone in specifically on what you wanted to look at and ignore everything else, that's really what we're talking about here. But then you end up playing Contra until four in the morning. That is that that can be an issue, actually. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I have heard about people who, you know, there are obviously people who are prescribed this medication in order to treat an illness or condition. There are some people who get hold of it to use it specifically to try and sharpen up their their minds for a specific purpose. And uh, that's not <laughs> what the drugs are being uh, sold as officially anyway, legally, um, but that there is a huge market for it, particularly in places like uh, prestigious schools where there's a high pressure environment to do really well. And so um, the thing is that sometimes it can really help you focus on what you need to do. It does not necessarily make you a super genius. It just means that you are able to focus much more effectively than you normally would. Mm -hmm. You might be able to recall things more effectively, or you may just be able to really concentrate well so that if you have the dedication, it's helpful. It does not magically have you learn everything in your class by taking a pill, right? No, no, it's not an osmosis of knowledge pill. Right. And um, so and, and it really works better at low doses. Yes, yes. A higher dose often will actually impair 
neurological function. So uh, normally the doses that would have this kind of effect where you're able to focus uh, your attention would be very, very low doses. At least initially, uh, uh, the body has this habit of building up tolerances to chemicals, depending upon the type of chemical. So sometimes you will have people who just realize that the effect no longer has the kick that it used to have and that upping the dose does not necessarily give them that same feeling they had at the the onset. It may just be that it's not effective at all for them, uh, at least to you know sharpen up their brains. It might be very effective in hurting them, which is uh, one of the issues about nootropics. Another is that if you aren't focused on the specific task you wanted to, to really concentrate on, you might find yourself you know, distracting yourself with anything else to do that will take up your time. I read accounts of people who said, yeah, I did. I took some fully, fully intending to study for a big, you know, midterm or something along those lines. And instead spent four hours reorganizing my music collection <laughs> or, uh, you know, endlessly cleaning the, the, room I was in as or opposed to playing Contra. Yeah. Or, or yeah, or the, proving to my friends that I can get there without using the Konami code. Um, you know, th- these are certain things that can happen. And uh, it's again, it, I stress that this is something I would really recommend staying away from until science is able to catch up and determine what stuff is actually effective, what stuff is safe whether or not anyone should ever try this kind of thing. Because... And, and furthermore, why it's effective. Because yeah. the thing with a lot of these uh, man-made brain chemical altering substances is that we're not sure why they do what they do. That's a big thing. The, the inner workings of the brain are still so mysterious to us that we can't be completely certain that something that at least on the surface appears to be beneficial does not have some other effect that could be really bad. And we don't know what the long-term effects are because these drugs have not been out there that long and especially haven't been used to treat someone indefinitely, right? It wasn't necessarily a drug that you're going to be taking this for the rest of your life type thing or or as regularly as someone who perhaps is really trying to excel at a particular high-stress environment might yeah. be doing. And since the drugs are fairly new, we don't have any lifetime studies about all of that long-term kind of stuff. Right. Uh, we do have a lot of people who have uh, tested it quite a bit, you know, like, <laughs> yes. like the, and not just, not just people who are testing it, you know, self-testing. Uh, I'm right. talking about like, <laughs> not like, I tested that whiskey a lot last week. <laughs> but like, like the military, you know, obviously the military has a vested interest in making sure that certain individuals are able to really focus on right. tasks at hand, like uh, the Air Force being a great example. Mm-hmm. If you have pilots who are going to be on a particularly long mission and you want their mental acuity to remain at peak performance throughout the entire uh, the entire endeavor, then you may say, hey, you're going to want to take this type of medication. It's going to keep you sharp so that you and your team are remaining as safe as possible through the duration of this mission. Uh, but we should say that not all of these chemicals that affect the brain are necessarily man-made. Uh, so- some of them occur naturally in foods that we might consume well, I mean, maybe our ancestors didn't consume chocolate, but certainly we consume a lot of chocolate. There's a, there's a substance in cocoa called flavanols. Is that what makes chocolate so very tasty? No. Oh. That's sugar. That, oh. And fat. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just be over here eating my vat of sugar fat. You guys go ahead. 
it uh, is a Tuesday. No, I mean, people love to be told, eat chocolate and you'll be smart. But uh, <laughs> there may be some evidence to this. Not necessarily that you should go just buy candy bars of chocolate and eat them. But there no. might be uh, healthier ways of preparing the cocoa inherent to chocolate so that you get the chemical that we're about to talk about without so much sugar and fat and all that. But anyway, here here's the scoop. There is evidence that consuming cocoa flavanols could have brain-enhancing effects. And the example I'm going to cite is a 2012 study published by the American Heart Association's journal Hypertension. So here's what we had. There were 90 uh, elderly participants with mild cognitive impairment. And they were separated into three groups. And each of the groups was going to consume a cocoa flavanol beverage in different quantities. So you had the high consumption group, which was 990 milligrams. Then you had the intermediate consumption group, which was 520 milligrams, or the low group, which was 45 milligrams. And they had them consume this beverage for eight weeks. Not like continuously just consuming all day. That's, that's <laughs> good. That sounds like some kind of extra bonus material from Seven. Bonus material. Quite a bonus. A journal day three. <laughs> I must escape. Glug, glug. It's all stained with chocolate. Oh, yeah. no. Okay, this is terrible. No, uh, so then uh, researchers gave the participants neuropsychological exams to test performance on different mental functions like uh, and they, they gave the list. It was, quote, executive function, working memory, short-term memory, long-term episodic memory, processing speed, and global cognition. And what did they find? Well, they found that for the people drinking the high-level flavanol consumption and the intermediate flavanol consumption, there was significant improvement on the scores uh, for the tests of the ability to relate visual stimuli to motor responses the tests of working memory, uh, task switching, and verbal memory. And they also said that the people who drank the high levels of flavanol drinks just had higher overall scores on the cognitive tests. That's wow. pretty cool. Yeah. And so the idea there, and we see this a lot in studies about improving brain function, is a lot of these tests tend to be not so much focused on let's get a group of, you know, 25-year-olds and and see if we can make them smarter. But a lot of it's on counteracting damage done by neurodegenerative disease or right. by dementia. Sure. It's um, it's just like the the approved uses of the nootropics tend to be in uh, treatment of various conditions, not, not meant to be sold over the counter as necessarily a, a brain booster. Mm -hmm. It was the, the work that was done was really meant to try and uh, find new ways to treat these these various conditions. Yeah, and let's step back for a minute and acknowledge that that's really, I'd say, the most important thing here, right? Sure. I mean, oh, the, re the real priority before we get about going to, you know, how can I be smarter? Oh, I'm going to chocolate, is to think about what can we really do for people who have had some kind of loss of ability yes. through disease or through injury or whatever it is, that seems like something that's a truly profound and important thing to achieve. Absolutely. Therapeutic uses, you know, medical treatment uses obviously are number one priority and chocolate consumption is a distant second. Still very important, <laughs> but a distant second. 
Most of the experts that cover this cocoa flavanol news, by the way, want to remind you yet again, as we did earlier, this does not just mean you have a license to go eat as much chocolate as you want. That's probably not going to be good for you overall. Uh, right. Yeah, that that can actually be counterproductive in in several ways. Uh, <laughs> I can I can actually talk about one of those ways right now. Uh, let's talk about antioxidants, y'all. Oh, okay. Uh, so. And sorry, sorry, guys, if, if there's any weird, awkward pauses, we're jumping all around in our notes. So that's that's what that is. That's, now, that's not our editor falling down on the job. Noel is great. We are scatterbrained. Yes, that thing. OK, so antioxidants. Let me tell you a story about brain cells. Brain cells are perhaps particularly susceptible to oxidation. Oxidation being the destruction of cells by unstable, electron deficient, free ranging punk rock oxygen and or oxygen involved molecules. Uh, which are created as a byproduct of the conversion of glucose to energy. Fascinating story, I know. Everyone is waiting all <laughs> no, day No, 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 I understand, yeah. So <laughs> you take some sugar, you need to turn that into something your body can do with it. Oh, right. You and make some oxygen. In the process, you, you create these little particles that are not going to do your cells any good, brain cells in particular. And eating too much food can make this worse because perhaps, obviously, your body will be breaking down more glucose. Hmm. This is where all that extra chocolate comes in. Um, but antioxidants are these molecules that will prevent cell damage from oxidation by sacrificing themselves to the oxidation process. And, and lots of stuff, I mean, mostly fruits and vegetables, green tea, stuff like that, uh, are really terrific sources of these. And so if you've ever heard anyone harping on about how you should eat stuff with antioxidants in it, that's that's what they mean. Yeah. Right. I've actually seen green tea listed as another one of these chemical compounds that may improve brain function. Uh, right, right. I, as far as I know, it's because of the antioxidants in them. Yeah. Okay. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's other claims. Right. And to be fair, again, this is one of those things where uh, we know that the antioxidants are important. That does not necessarily mean that that buying supplements that are labeled as being antioxidants are necessarily going to give you uh, the same uh, effect as eating a good diet. OK, and this transitions me into what we're going to call Lauren's rant time. OK, Lauren's rant time. So. Nutritional supplements are really shady business. Most of them are not approved by the FDA. And in general, every single scientific study, I don't have any to cite for you right now because it is all of them. You guys indicate that eating food is way better for getting nutrients into your body than taking a supplement. The food is what your body is used to processing in order to get nutritional content out of the supplements. I don't know what's in them. You don't know what's in them. The people who made them might not know what's in them. So eat good food. I, I heartily approve of this rant. Uh, and in fact, it it flows right into the next point that I was going to mention, which uh, y'all have heard that fish are brain food, right? That's not sure. just me. Right? Say that again. Fish are brain food. Fish are brain food. Is fish, that a person? Fish. <laughs> fish are you from the South? You know what I'm talking about. Fish are brain food. Are we talking about the band? Because I love them. No, yeah. not fish with a PH. <laughs> what just <laughs> happened in here? Definitely not brain food. Look, fish are brain food. That's one of the things I remember hearing all the time when I was a little kid, and I absolutely detested fish as oh, a no. kid. Aww. As an adult, love it. Love it, but hated it as a kid. It was, to be fair, is it I also, because they only gave you the heads. I think it was. I think it was mostly. <laughs> first of all, that implication I resent. <laughs> Second of all, I think it mostly had to do with the fact that my I grew up from ages one through five, uh, about two blocks away from a Captain D's. So, oh no, yeah, yeah. yeah. So my idea of what 
seafood was was pretty twisted. So the 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 fish to hollow uh, brittle grease ratio is not that high. Yeah, right. the the breading. Was, let me just put it this way: my favorite thing to get from Captain D's was like the little the little canister thing of all just the breading that had been fallen off of everything else that was just in the fryer. <laughs> yeah. That was my favorite thing. There's yeah, a lot of that. I've gotten better. Anyway, as it turns out, fish are brain food, um, and specifically. Fish have a lot of uh, omega. Well, certain fish have a lot of omega three fatty acids, um, which look, they they help slow down the aging process uh, in the brain. Or really, if you want to think of it another way, if you don't have omega three fatty acids in your diet, a sufficient amount, then your brain will age more rapidly. So perhaps it's better to look at it that way, to say that you really want to have this not to not necessarily to uh, slow down the aging process, but to prevent a rapid aging process. It's kind of a, a glass half full, glass half empty kind of argument, but it is an important distinction to make. Um, so in other words, you want to have these omega-3 fatty acids in your diet. Uh, so one way of doing that is just to make sure you're eating you know, a, a good amount of fish. Not like an enormous amount of fish. <laughs> uh, no, no. And if you're, for example, pregnant, you might want to avoid fish that are high in uh, heavy metals like mercury. Absolutely. Very good point. Um, but uh, omega-3 and also omega-6 fatty acids, for that matter, are known as polyunsaturated fatty acids, which you can contrast with the saturated fats that your food labels all warn you about and the trans fats that are currently being banned from lots of fast food and uh, packaged products. Mm. The difference can chemically speaking, is that unsaturated fats aren't carrying as uh, much hydrogen as they could, which allows them to bond differently with stuff and things. Honestly, I don't understand it very well more than that, but I just wanted to put in there that there's a reason that they're called saturated and that it's a chemical thing. At any rate, um, saturated fats and trans fats can negatively affect your brain health in that they well, first of all, they negatively affect the body's vascular system. Mm. And yes, eating heart-healthy foods means that you're also helping your brain because your brain contains blood vessels and yeah. blood. So when you do stuff that hurts your blood vessels, you are in the long term hurting your brain. Very good. Yeah, our bodies are just – it's a – Big ol' interconnected system. And, uh, yeah, sometimes when you affect one part of that system, it can have long-reaching effects in other parts that you wouldn't necessarily think about just from the top of your head, mm -hmm. so to speak. <laughs> I feel like there's a few brain puns that I should be making yeah, in, right, I, right in here. I didn't I'm... mean to make that one. Oh. You have the brain pun of a stagecoach tilter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And, and Fisher brain food tripped you up? <laughs> So polyunsaturated fatty acids um, also have a more direct connection to brain support. They, uh, they, they, they help create more plasticity in synapses and have been shown to improve learning and memory. A deficit of them, in fact, has been associated with increased risks of mental health problems like uh, ADD or dyslexia, dementia, depression, and schizophrenia. Yikes. So so it's, it's good to have them. Yeah. Uh, and again... Just like we were saying, it's good to have them in your diet, like by actually going and eating fish as opposed to... To taking fish oil supplements. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Same sort of thing. And if you don't like fish, like child Jonathan, there are many other sources of them, which I do not have listed in front of me, but the internet can tell you all about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I love fish now. 
In fact, I'm kind of craving it right now. But let's let's continue through the rest of this. We're, we'll power through the end of our episode so we can tell people uh, other important things to know about brain chemistry and how to, to best make sure that you're operating at peak levels. Huh. Okay, so in addition to fats, which your brain is made up a lot of and is required for stuff to happen in it, glucose is one of the other really important things. And we were just talking, I know, about how breaking down glucose can be sort of bad, but the thing is that the brain draws its energy from these sugars, meaning if they're meaning that if your bodily sugar levels drop too low, it gets harder for your brain to keep all of those important neurotransmitters flowing. A steady stream of sugars, in fact, is best for your mental health. And, you know, via complex carbohydrates like whole grains or vegetables, not candy bars. I I can specifically state that when my blood sugar level drops, all I can think of is murder. Uh, Yeah, it's physiologically identical to having a panic attack. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that explains a lot of things. I mean, they're hangry is a real thing. It is. Yeah. It's a danger to all of us. Joe has Joe has yet to have experienced the the two of us. Lauren and I. Are oh both, yeah, double double hangry. We're, we're That's prone to hanger. Yeah. <laughs> when, uh, what are you talking about? I've experienced this. <laughs> what with both of us at the same time? Uh, yeah, I don't think the same so. Time. You're still here, so I suspect <laughs> that you have not. So these are some of the more common things that have been researched and vetted as having a direct impact on brain health. But lots of this research is still being done. Uh, Very recently, in the past like year or two, it turns out that even the bacteria in your gut can impact your brain. Um, Some bacteria have connections to depressive behaviors or autism behaviors and uh, others to the immune system, which can in turn impact uh, brain cell related diseases and risks of things like schizophrenia. In mice, at any rate. As far as I know, none of this research has been extrapolated out to humans yet, but it, it's it's really interesting stuff. And if this proves true across the the spectrum, the spectrum, yeah. then it could mean it could have huge impact. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, it's one of those things where, uh, like we've been stressing all along, the brain is one of those those organs that just we don't know everything about yet. We don't understand everything. As we learn more, as we learn more about its operation and uh, and what is within the norm versus outside the norm, uh, we will perhaps find new ways to leverage that information and, and perhaps not just treat people who have lost some capacity uh, in, in mental function, but also improve those of us who you know, are and fall within that that range of typical, whatever that may be defined as. Um, and also just the thought that as our society progresses, as it becomes more complex and as people get access to uh, uh, nutritional foods, healthy foods, that we'll continue to see a development on an evolutionary basis. Now, granted, that's a scale that's so long that, you know, we can only guess about it. We're not going to be around for it unless we've all figured out how to download our brains. And in that case, it's just really software patches. Yeah, Cursewild's going to be around for it. Yeah, he'll he'll be upgrading us. We'll, be, we'll put you up to Jonathan 15.2 and get it so that you stop being so neurotic. That'd be fantastic. I don't know what I think about the whole singularity thing, but I uh, certainly... Yeah, sorry, that was a little bit of extra Kurzweil snark. I didn't intend <laughs> to go quite that snarky, my bad guys. Well, I'm just saying that I certainly do hope with humankind, at least, that uh, if we do continue to improve our intelligence, that, that as a species, that does come as a result of 
technology and medicine and something deliberate rather than, say, natural selection, which is maybe how we got as smart as we are now, but it's sure. not something we want to encourage happening to humans these days. <laughs> well, I, I also hope that it comes about through rigorous scientific inquiry and not so many DIY projects that could potentially go awry and negatively impact a person's life. Right. So we really got to narrow it down here. Okay. Good science, compassion. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, Tasty food. Yeah. Tasty food. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm on board for all of that. So uh, the interesting thing here is that that we will continue to learn more about the brain and we will find ways to use that information to help people, whether or not we ever get to a point where you take a, a, a pill as a kid and you're magically super intelligent. I, I doubt it, but it's you know, who knows? Uh, we don't know enough to say that that will never happen. Uh, so I'm interested to hear what our listeners think about this. If you guys have any opinions about anything that we've talked about, everything from the, the nutrition to nootropics, you should let us know. Drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook or Google+. Our handle at all three is FW Thinking. We'll be addressing this again in another episode about using technology to boost our brains and how that is both interesting and terrifying. So look forward to that, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.